I'm Mark Lynch, director of the project on Middle East political science. Welcome back to the Polmap's Middle East political science podcast, our series of conversations with scholars working in the field. Uh, with us today is Christopher Phillips. He's a senior lecturer at Queen Mary University of London and an associate fellow at Chatham House's Middle East North Africa program. He's the author of a new book, The Battle for Syria, International Rivalry in the New Middle East. Uh, Chris, welcome to the program. Hi. So you have a background in international relations theory, and, and you've been working on the Middle East for quite some time, and you decided to write this book about the, the international politics of Syria, which is quite different, I think, from the way a lot of other people have approached the war in Syria. What, what motivated you to approach Syria that way, through the lens of international rivalry and conflict? Well, Really, in my opinion, I felt like there was a gap there that most of the coverage of the Syria conflict uh, had largely been at a journalistic level. It had largely been quite superficial, uh, and the the focus had been very much on the on the short term rather than the long term. So that was the, the basic uh, logic for getting involved with it. Why I looked at the international side of things was I felt that that had been missed from the the popular and, and to an extent scholarly narratives on Syria that had been very much a, almost an area studies approach to the Syria conflict. This was understandable given that it was a country that a lot of people didn't know that much about so naturally people went to area study specialists who knew the country uh, to explain more about the complexities of the state and the society in Syria but I felt that what they weren't really looking at especially in the first couple of years of the conflict was how the international system or subsystem within the uh, the Middle East was playing out in the Syrian conflict and how in my opinion right from the word go uh, the rivalries amongst the states, and in my opinion, the shifting dynamics of the regional system was really having a strong impact on the, the Syrian civil war um, as it broke out. And so I wrote this book very much to highlight that point, to sort of say that this isn't just uh, a case whereby you get a domestic conflict that then sucks in external actors. Actually, it's a conflict that from the very beginning is framed and shaped uh, and impacted by changes to the regional system. Let's walk through that a little bit. So what was going on in the international relations of the region at the, the, the level of the regional order um, in 2011 that you think drew people or drew states to want to intervene in Syria in this way? I think the most important change was a stepping back by the United States. I, I uh, call it the, the, the post-American Middle East, and other people have written about this, this topic uh, as well. What you saw, uh, and it was before 2011, it was in the run-up to 2011, and very much a consequence uh, of the 2003 Iraq war and its aftermath, was a combination of the, the United States not, uh, not getting what it wanted out of the Iraq war, seeing the limitations of military power to achieve its political goals, uh, the uh, structural shifts of less reliance on Gulf oil with the development of fracking, the development of uh, economic austerity off the back of the financial crisis, and of course the agency factor, the election of Barack Obama as president, who wasn't an interventionist instinctively and was very much against George W. Bush's interventions in the Middle East. That'll create a, a climate, as far as I saw, in Washington against continuing the kind of hegemony that uh, certainly the George W. Bush administration had, had pursued. So on the one hand, you get that stepping back from the United States. That was one shift. So that leads regional actors to become more assertive. Absolutely. So it leaves a vacuum, and you, you see regional actors stepping into that vacuum. A lot of people talk about Iran. In my opinion, actually, Iran had already 
uh, advanced as a consequence of the 2003 Iraq war. It was the great winner of uh, the SPAC. You get a... Uh, you get a, uh, a desire by, or, or perhaps opportunities being seen by other emerging regional powers, notably Turkey, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia in opposition to, to the rise of Iran. Uh, and they all want to take advantage or to push their own uh, agendas more as the US seems to step back. And because they have a particular interest in Syria, Syria ends up being pretty early on a battleground for these regional rivalries. And one thing that really struck me doing this research was going right back to sort of 2011, summer 2011. After the Arab Spring begins to settle down a little bit, uh, and Syria continues to, to uh, escalate into conflict, most of these regional actors are looking at Syria not with alarm, but as an opportunity. And I would argue that they're all in their own way pouring the fuel onto the fire of the conflict rather than to sort of try to de-escalate it. I think that's a major reason mm -hmm. why you see uh, a rush to arms in Syria. Now, what's interesting is that the other than Iran, uh, mm. the players that you're looking at, uh, Turkey, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, they're all U.S. allies. Mm. And yet uh, the way you describe them in the book, and, and I think the way they are in reality, mm. is that they're quite competitive with each other, mm -hmm. pursuing their, their own individual interests. How do you explain that level of, of divergence uh, within a supposed alliance system? And why did the U.S. have such a hard time kind of curtailing this or controlling it? Well, again, this in many ways, this shows uh, uh, the, the weaknesses, really, or, or of a, a very basic systemic realist mm -hmm. theory. Because, of course, the, the idea of international relations theory in that regard is that those allies of the, the regional hegemon or the, you know, the, su the superpower, the United States, should largely act in concert. They're, you know, acting in... Um, uh, alongside one another with, with similar goals. But, of course, the reality is quite different. Actually, if you look at the internal dynamics in those states, how they view foreign policy, uh, they're not willing to be simply controlled by the United States. Uh, they're actually uh, you know, pursuing their own interests. There's a lot of rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Qatar, for example, despite being both being very close allies. Turkey has a very interesting relationship with Saudi Arabia, one of... Uh, sort of frenemies, sometimes they're ally, allies, sometimes they're, they're rivals. Uh, they are quite close with the Qataris, that's one sort of consistent uh, feature mm -hmm. of, of, the, of Turkish policy. But I think that that's another component to this, that, that perhaps the, the purely theoretical approach doesn't explain, that you do need to look at those internal actors. Uh, so I wouldn't sort of put my, whilst I'm looking at the, at the system side of things, I wouldn't lump myself so clearly in a sort of a hard systemic mm -hmm. realist mm -hmm. camp, because I think that actually, uh, the internal dynamics interact with those system and subsystem level. Um, well, the the flip dynamics. is actually quite interesting, right? Both mm. Turkey and Qatar were quite were quite close to the Syrian regime yeah. pre pre twenty eleven, and they end up being in many ways the most uh, fervent uh, backers of regime change. Mm. And you know, what do you think explains that? I mean, they're coming from very different domestic configurations, very different relations to Syria. Why do they end up looking like that? Uh, I think the the shortest answer is that they both have in uh, in different ways and for different reasons highly personalised um, foreign policy making structures. So Qatar has always had that. It's, it doesn't have a particularly deep foreign policy um, institution uh, making institutions. Uh, it's always been centred around the Emir and the Prime Minister. 
uh, a small decision-making circle. Uh, so it's quite easy for a flip like that to happen in a highly personalised system like that. Turkey is an interesting one because actually it has got quite developed institutions. Uh, it's got you know, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, in Turkey, mm. the, the, the army is part of the, the deep state that have traditionally been quite Kemalist in, uh, in uh, Turkey and have never really looked at the Middle East and never really been interested in the Middle East mm. that much and always looked westward to the United States and to Europe. But over the 2000s, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the Prime Minister and now President of, of Turkey, uh, made a concerted effort to concentrate power in his own hands and to, to really uh, dilute the influence, either by force or by uh, other means, uh, around his vision. And actually, by 2012, he's largely been successful in that regard. So you do see this highly personalised uh, foreign policy from Turkey. And that means that when the Arab Spring happens, both Qatar and Turkey take a similar line, which is that this is an opportunity to further their interests, they quickly jump on the idea that the Muslim Brotherhood, who they've both supported for different reasons in the past, will be the regional winner of this. They strongly support the Muslim Brotherhood both in Egypt, uh, Muslim Brotherhood elements or former elements in Tunisia and Libya, and of course in Syria. And so they think, wrongly as it turns out, that what's going to happen in Syria is very quickly, like in other Arab Spring, Spring countries, the regime will fall, they'll be replaced by a Muslim Brotherhood allied regime, or at least something involving the Muslim Brotherhood, mm -hmm. and it's therefore in their interest to jump onto this regional bandwagon uh, to have a more favourable outcome for their states afterwards. So that, I think that's what explains the, the, mm -hmm. the, the flip, both the structural shifts in the country, but also the personalities of the leaders. So you started off by saying that, um, that after the Arab Spring kind of unfolds, the regional powers, instead of seeing threat in Syria, they mm -hmm. see opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, does that change over time uh, with the rise of the Islamic State uh, and with the increasingly obvious radicalization of the insurgency? Um, do they start seeing this opportunity turning into a threat? Does that affect their policies? Or does it pretty much stay the same kind of cost-free proxy mm -hmm. war that they saw it as, as in 2012? Uh, no, they do change, but they change at different paces and for different reasons. So is what's quite interesting is the, the shift between, say, Saudi Arabia and Turkey. So Saudi Arabia, from the very beginning, is actually concerned about Islamists and jihadists. In fact, they have an incredibly specific set of demands they want out of Syria. They want to get rid of Assad because he's aligned with Iran. But they don't want the Muslim Brotherhood to win because they're opposed to the Muslim Brotherhood at home. And they also don't want sort of Al-Qaeda-esque jihadists to be victorious. So they end up narrowing their focus on one particular group, which is sort of secular, moderate, former military figures. Uh, who have abandoned Assad's army, so they back just them. And then slowly when it becomes clear that they're not going to be victorious, they switch their support to a more Salafist-orientated uh, uh, set of actors. But again, right from the word go, they're worried about their... Uh, the, the role of jihadists and so on. Um, so they don't, you know, they, they, mm -hmm. they're, they're quite restricted on who can go into Syria from Saudi Arabia, for example, from about mid-2012. So they are worried about that. So I don't think you see much change from the Saudis uh, rather than just trying to back the non-jihadist groups and the non-Muslim Brotherhood groups that they choose. Turkey, on the other hand, actually you do see, and it's been quite recent, a, a full 180. Uh, so it's almost too late. It is... Negligent, sort of, yeah, being a little bit um, negligent on the threat posed by jihadists, even after ISIS capture Mosul, uh, Turkey is very reluctant to join the United States mm -hmm. coalition against ISIS, uh, and only after it starts getting targeted at home 
by ISIS attacks does it begin to switch and turn on ISIS. And now most recently, in 2016, it actually recognised that the threat coming from Syria, both jihadism and mm -hmm. forms of Kurdish nationalism, is greater than the threat to Assad. So only recently we've seen uh, Turkey effectively drop the policy of, of going after Assad. Uh, but that took five years, mm -hmm. and arguably it was quite clear that this current policy wasn't working from about 2013, really. What about uh, kind of these uh, private Gulf networks? Um, how do they intersect with the state actors? Mm. That's very interesting, and quite frankly, I haven't seen any convincing research yet that's really looked into that in, in terms of the role of the state actors. What we know is that these private um, Gulf networks raised a lot of money for Syria pretty much as soon as the conflict broke out. So from 2011, there were um, private actors, mm -hmm. often by religious charities, Saudi Arabia, um, Gulf states, raising money specifically for weaponry. That was clamped down on by some Gulf actors, the Saudis and the Qataris, um, in 2012. And then by 2013, they started putting pressure on Kuwait, which had emerged as this uh, sort of uh, uh, gathering point for a lot, of, a lot of these funds. So they do sort of shut them down. What we don't know, what I haven't been able to gather myself, and I'd be interested to see if there's more, more research on this, is how much in those early years there was active state encouragement there was certainly a hands-off approach, so there's the minimum of turning a blind eye, but I'd be interested as to at what stage of the policy-making process you actually get members of the government, either in Qatar or in Saudi Arabia, actively encouraging this. I suspect, given their past record, there will have been some um, uh, contact, rather like raising, raising support mm -hmm. for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan in the, uh, in the 1980s. But I think proving it and it will be very difficult. So I don't want to sort of, you know, right, say for right. certain that that's the case. Now, what's interesting uh, about the way you frame this book um, it, is that in many ways it's a very realist type of book. You mm -hmm. focus on state actors and, uh, the, and, and the system mm -hmm. and you do go into the domestic politics of some of the states. Mm -hmm. But your previous book was much more focused on kind of constructivist type ideas mm -hmm. about identity and Arab nationalism and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And why do you think you end up moving mm -hmm. in this more realist direction? Or, or did you? Do you think that this is actually a theoretical change or do you see continuity from the one to the next? I actually do see continuity in that I, if you actually look at sort of you know, the constructivist approach, let's say, you're sort of, you know, the, 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 the classic uh, views of Went and, and, and so on, is that actually they accept the realist international framework. You know, they accept the idea of the states being the lead actors, they accept the mm -hmm. idea of sort of anarchy and, 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 and systems and structures. What they challenge is what, you know, where the interests come from and the, the role of identity in those interests. So I don't necessarily see uh, the two positions as irreconcilable. I think that what I've looked at in this book is something that focuses more on the, 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 you know, the, the, states, as act, the states as actors, but I'm not saying uh, along the lines of the, the hard sort of realist mm -hmm. approach that um, these interests are, are fixed and sort of, you know, that states are monolithic actors that, that don't change and don't have internal mm -hmm. contradictions. I think I look at those internal contradictions and explain where they come from. And, of course, I'm not saying that states are the only actors. I mean, one an important part, I think, of the book, perhaps I don't emphasise enough, is that um, the role of non-state actors in the, this emerging, changing um, Middle East environment, particularly Kurdish nationalists, particularly um, uh, jihadists like Al-Qaeda, and they play an important role that do, that do shape the, the conflict. So I don't necessarily see it as uh, that 
um, contradictory. I would say, though, of course, that I have the luxury, I suppose, that um, I think in, in, in the, perhaps in the, the British uh, IR approach, we're, we're less siloed, let's say, than uh, those uh, in political science mm-hmm. in the United States. And so I think it's possible uh, for me to sort of use some realist-leaning um, mm-hmm. uh, approaches without necessarily coming out and saying I'm a, I'm a realist, whereas I don't know if that would be so easy in the, in the US. Well, one other advantage that you might have uh, being a British academic is mm-hmm. that, you know, despite what you said before about the US kind of pullback, mm-hmm. enabling a lot of the regional activism, um, here, in, here in Washington, uh, most of the debate continues to be framed about American policy choices. It's why didn't the U.S. intervene or should it have or all those sorts of things. So from a non-American perspective, you know, in other words, what do you think when you look at the course of Syria's war um, and you kind of put the U.S. into the background mm-hmm. What could have gone differently? Was it ever possible for Syria's uprising to evolve in a different direction? Or do you think that it was a, it was basically doomed to unfold this way because of the regional configuration that you describe? I think it's very difficult to, to prove one way or the other, um, uh, as always, because you know, so these kind of uh, counterfactuals, what would have happened. I, I would argue that... The, as soon as the uprising armed itself and moved to, to a, a full military... And there was a huge debate in the Syrian opposition. It wasn't something that was you know, just a flip of a switch. And you get this uh, interesting period, late 2011, early 2012, where there's still a very strong you know, civil activist um, movement at the same time as people are taking up arms. But I think that as soon as that decision is made, because of those regional changes, because of the the desire and willingness by Qatar, Turkey, and later on Saudi Arabia to arm uh, certain mm-hmm. groups, on top of the fact that, you know, the Assad regime really does want a confrontation. I mean, it, and, and the Iranians are willing to bankroll and support it, and later on the Russians are as well. I think that as soon as it becomes a, a consciously armed uprising, I think that this route that we saw uh, was highly likely. Not not certain, but highly likely. It's very interesting that um, most of the, the diplomatic analysis that came out in 2011, that, that I read, that got, that got declassified in the UK, certainly, pointed that out. It pointed out that actually the regime is really quite deeply embedded and a lot of stuff needs to happen, you know, that didn't seem likely to happen, such as uh, major defections within the military. Uh, But of course, we know, those of us that have studied the regime, that it was a heavily coup-proofed regime, you know, tied in with loyalists from the Alawi community and, and, and others, that that also looked unlikely. So, as soon as yeah the uh, the the, the uh, uprising became an armed uh, entity, I think there was only one way that Assad would have been toppled, which was by external intervention uh, by the United States. Most likely, it's highly unlikely any other state would would be able to do that um, without provoking a response mm-hmm. from Iran and Russia, which is why you know the opposition desperately pushed for uh, United States intervention. But I would argue that that was never really on the cards. I think that, again, the legacy of the Iraq war was that regime change was really off the table for the Obama administration. And that was you know, reinforced by the problems in Libya. You know, he was pushed into something he didn't want to do in Libya. Uh, and it then led to a great deal of chaos afterwards, including the, the murder of a US ambassador. And that really sort of put the nail in the coffin, I think, for the Obama administration or any kind of military re- regime change. So. 
I think it was yeah uh, an inevitability from that point. I think that the the conflict was going to go in this quite gruesome way. All right, thanks. We've been speaking with uh, Christopher Phillips, uh, Queen Mary University of London, uh, associate fellow at Chatham House, um, author of the new book, The Battle for Syria, International Rivalry in the New Middle East. Uh, Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you.